Welcome to Movie Maniacs, discussing the greatest movies of all time and all the new films in theaters and streaming that you need to know about. Like us, rate us, share us. Good evening, everybody. My name is Chuck Curry alongside my co-host, Kenny B. This is another installment of Movie Maniacs, our weekly podcast and also radio show heard on WoWo, WOWO, out of Fort Wayne, Indiana, every Saturday night at... Midnight. This is a program where we talk uh, about movies. We talk about anything in terms of the world of motion pictures, also television, anything pertaining to pop culture, which always pops into the equation. Uh, Here's my co-host, Kenny B. Oh, I just wanted to point out uh, this week's topic on our program, because it's the uh, week of the birthday of Liam Neeson, who really reinvigorated a new genre for himself when he did Taken, uh, we're going to talk about our top 10 favorite or sort of cool movies that we like that delve into the B movie world of uh, exploitation or action, whatever you want to have it. As long as it's not a $200 million movie, uh, it can be mentioned. So there we'll have it. We'll do that in the second half of the program. Uh, without further ado, here's my co-host, Kenny B. How you doing, Kenny? I'm doing well. I was almost going to mention a couple $200 million movies that looked like they were B movies. But, you know, it's amazing. This is a good time to be doing a... I think about B-movies, and I have to mention, if you hear any growling in the background, it is not my stomach. We have the air show in town this week, and the jets are arriving, and you know, those suckers are so loud when they're flying, I can't imagine what it was like in D.C. last week when they set off the... uh, the sonic boom which they're they're not used to them we get a sonic boom about once a week here because we're between the wallops uh, air force base wallops island uh, nasa facility and of course uh, the uh, air force base up in dover the huge air force base so we're always getting them but yeah the jets are arriving they're fly- they i am on the flight path you might hear them but this is a perfect week to be talking about b movies because a lot of b movies like the fog and things like that deal with you know, things rolling in, taking over the world, and we've got all this Canadian smoke this week. So, great time for B-movies, in addition to Liam Nielsen. You know, it's interesting about the Canadian smoke. I I walked out of my business, my ice cream parlor, uh, the day before yesterday, and it smelled like something was burning, and I said, oh my goodness, I I think a tire factory is on fire, and I I got in my car, started driving, and it didn't seem to end, and I spoke to somebody, and they explain to me what it uh, was but it sort of felt like night of the comet from 1984 yeah the sun was trying to burn to burn to burn through uh it almost had like a end of the world sort of depressing feeling i gotta be honest uh i I still this is day three it's a lot better but it is cloudy it's a little cooler than it normally should be this time of year but it is what it is so we'll do our movie show and uh, try to forget what's going on in the real world i'm going to bounce right into box office and what's coming out and what we could look forward to spider-man across the spider-verse uh opened over the weekend did very well 120 million dollar opening weekend riding the wave of some really good reviews it is an animated movie but i i I watched about a half hour i didn't get a chance to watch the whole thing we booked it here at pocono cinema the animation is fantastic it almost looks uh it almost looks like live action uh, more than animation to a point uh, some people think, you know, a movie's good enough to be non- nominated possibly for Best Picture. I have no idea. I've never been the biggest fan of an- animation, but what I what I saw, uh, I sort of liked, and it's good that yet another 
movie has had a good opening that's good for theaters. Little Mermaid 2, 40 million in weekend number two, 57% drop off week to week, a little bit certainly more than Disney would have wanted, 186 million in 10 days of release. Uh, the new horror film, The Boogeyman, in his first weekend of release, 12.3 million. That's so so. Uh, they're probably looking for for 18 to 20. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 came in for 10.2, 322 million domestically to date in 780 million uh, worldwide and Fast and Furious X which is 10 9.2 and weekend number 2 120 million in 10 days of release not uh, his, his this film is not doing as well on par with the last few installments in the Fast and Furious franchise but having said that still 600 million dollars overall worldwide entering the marketplace this weekend will be Paramount's new Transformers movie I think it's called Rise of the Beasts um, reviews are about 54% positive on Rotten Tomatoes which is probably enough to get it a decent opening weekend uh, I hear it's tracking between 45 and 55 here domestically it's $200 million film so that's below what the studio would want Having said that, I think they co-produced it with uh, with with Hasbro. So we'll see how this film does worldwide. Now a lot of buzz is swirling again on 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 the Flash, at least among the blogosphere uh, of, of of filmdom. Seventy-two uh, percent positive so far on Rotten Tomatoes dot com. It appears it opens next Thursday night. Uh, I. I gotta be honest, Ken, this is the first movie, at least for me, just for me, The Flash is the first movie for me that I feel excited about seeing in a movie theater in a while. Uh, Top Gun Maverick, I did get excited before it came out last year and that did very well, but I just feel watching for me Michael Keaton back uh as 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 the batman from burton's 89 and 92 interpretation or incarnation uh has me excited and i i know a lot of people who want to like this movie seem to really dig it there are some naysayers around the edges who have an issue with ezra miller who plays barry allen the flash they just can't get over his personal life issues to me uh, I try to refrain myself from judgment. I don't know him personally. I don't know exactly what he did. I know he didn't kill anybody. So uh, I just look at the art and 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 look look at it from a, a product point of view, not from a personal point of view. And I think when you get involved knocking movies based on a person's personal life, uh, I I don't totally agree with with that. Uh, that judgment. I think they're two different factors, uh, and and that's is. Ultimately, what it is, everybody has their opinion, but I am looking forward to the the Flash. One other bit of movie uh, release information I just read today, according to tracking, that Indiana Jones and the Dollar Destiny, which opens on uh, June 30th, uh, tracking around a $60 million opening weekend. Now, Crystal Skull had a $100 million opening weekend, so I would think this is performing below par uh, evidently, Disney's going to have to put a little bit more money in the marketing, try to get younger people to go see this. But if you think, Ken, and I'll let you interject now, the first Indiana Jones movie uh, came out in 82. Uh, so generationally, this is a franchise that has garnered new, a new fan base because the people who saw this in a the theater in 84, let's say they were teens in their 20s or even 30, uh, they're not kids anymore. So you need that younger fan base We'll see if this film could get it. Do they want to watch an 80-year-old Harrison Floyd play this role? I guess we're going to see. But at this point, $60 million, and I'm not judging. Listen, it has nothing to do with the quality of film. I want to see it. But 
you know, it, it is, uh, they certainly would love to have 90 or 160. Is It's just so-so. Your thoughts on that one? Well, a couple things. First of all, I understand sure. that uh, there is a product placement for Depends in the movie. That's oh, for, 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 okay. our, for our generation. Uh, you know, yeah. we're all, you know, all of us who saw the original ones, we're going to have to get those things for hearing, for the hearing impaired. But I want to go back to, to The Flash. And, you know, yeah. for 90 years, people have bemoaned the fact that Fatty Arbuckle lost his career when, yeah, he was, he liked young women, but he didn't actually, he wasn't responsible for the death of the woman who, who died in his bed. It was, it, you know, right now, medical science has now concluded he probably actually had nothing to do with it. And Errol Flynn, of course, got blackballed because of his personality. And for years, you know, actors had to hide their sexuality. They had to hide their, you know, what their, a lot of things are their private lives. But we always, you know, actors have never been the bastion of virtue or else we would never have another movie with Johnny Depp. We'd never have anything by, by Martin Sheen or I'm there. Yeah. Sorry, Martin by Charlie Sheen. I mean, it's just, I, I don't, I don't get it. If you're, you know, even if you commit a crime, unless you're the idiot who says that he was beaten up in a, uh, in a, in a race attack in Chicago and he staged it himself. But even yeah. if you're convicted of a crime and you do your time, there's no reason why you can't come back to acting. And I think it's, I, I, I think it's terrible in this ultra woke society now that we look at people because, you know, very few of our movie stars ever would have made it. You know, uh, Bing Crosby abused his wife and kids. Uh, or so we're gonna, are we going to stop? Am I going to stop watching Holiday Inn as a result? No. Yeah. No, I agree. Listen, I, but I, I think the difference, and it's a good point you bring up, and I don't disagree with you, but I, I think ultimately what it comes down to, we live in a new world, which is of one of social media and, and instant uh, bombardment, Twitter, you know, judge, jury, and executioner uh, is 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 on social media, and I, I think I, I think you know the the uh, the 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 Me Too movement was a game changer, and I think it overreached. And I talked about this on the program many times with Mike. Yes, it had merit to a point. To a point, yes, a lot of things do. But I think when you take the pendulum and you swing it to such a, an extent, and then you. Uh, it, it, this human nature factor that likes to pile on and kick people uh, when they're down. Not that I'm defending Ezra Miller, but again, like I could watch The Flash. I'm not going to make judgment of his personal life. I'm just going to look at the movie as a whole and understand he's playing a character called Barry Allen. I, I'm, I'm, is he a good Barry Allen? Is this movie good? Am I entertained? Um, you know, the, the whole Kevin Spacey thing, uh, you know, he basically, he lost his career. Um Good, bad, or indifferent. I mean, obviously, he was accused of, you know, sexual harassment, and and, and some other people. I think James Franco's career got got hurt with some bad publicity. Him, you know, hooking up with uh, some young women, maybe even under the age of eighteen. That 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 did hurt or tarnish his career, no doubt. The question is going to be for Ezra Miller if this movie hits. Uh, they say there's a, 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 a sequel script already written for The Flash. I think he'll be able to come back to play Barry Allen in The Flash. Will he be able to do other roles? That's going to be harder. If you look at, and we talked about this, Jonathan Majors, the whole 
brouhaha of him having a domestic assault with his girlfriend in New York. It appears, you know, Marvel's in, in the process of you're removing him from marketing and credit sequences for Loki and uh, will he come back as, as, as Khan, Khan the Canker in the Marvel Universe? Uh, he, he did really good work in Creed 3. Will we see him in that franchise? Um, it's a very different landscape that people have to deal with. You know, one wrong move uh, and there's a lot of people with broomsticks and brimstone uh, trying to destroy your career, Ken. I mean, that's just, it, it, it's, it's, it is, some of it's justified, some of it's not. But I am more in your camp. Uh, I just think, you know, that's what we have courts for. And, um, and the I, funny I just thing, think that public opinion talk, destroying careers is, is, you know, no, you wouldn't want it done to the person in the mirror that right. quickly, no? Yeah, and the funny thing about the courts is, last yeah. time I checked, Kevin Spacey is undefeated in court. Yeah, but in terms of his career, um, it's it's been eradicated. I mean, yeah. he's you know, one of the group, a terrific actor. I mean, a terrific actor but uh, when the hatchet came down um he he never recovered no doubt about that kind of, um, kind of ironic that you know one of his early successes was american beauty yeah <laughs> yeah I, i'm a big fan of that movie uh here we go uh let's do some here's an interesting one this day in, in movie history before we get on to our top 10 lists of our, our top 10 favorite uh cool b action revenge type of uh, genre lists. Um, this day in movie history, as we tape, January 8th, 1984. This is really interesting. Ghostbusters was released, but all, and that was uh, Columbia Pictures, but and went, it went on to become a massive hit in the great summer of 1984. But also, same day, Gremlins was released by Warner Brothers, also going on to become a very big uh, nonstop week after week hit. Uh, the summer of 1984. I remember that day, June 8, 1984. Uh, I saw Gremlins at the Kings Plaza Movie Theater, Brooklyn, New York, on a on a Friday afternoon. I think it was the second showing, four o'clock show. And then I saw Ghostbusters the next night, uh, eight o'clock show uh, at the Kingsway in Brooklyn, New York. I got to tell you, Ken, uh, I, I think I saw Ghostbusters twice in the theater, but don't tell anybody because they'll, they'll think I'm crazy. I saw Gremlins ten times in a movie theater in the summer of 1984. I loved me some Gremlins. I like Ghostbusters a lot, but I love Gremlins, and I still do to this day. And both those movies generationally have stood the test of time, becoming two staples in the annals of pop culture movie watching. Those yeah. on Gremlins and Ghostbusters? I saw neither one of them in the movies because at the time, oh, okay. I was a second-year associate at the largest law firm in the state of Indiana, meaning okay. that... I didn't go to see movies for a couple of years because I was working six and a half days a week. I think it was actually perhaps even a year before I saw the, saw them both. I'm a huge fan of Ghostbusters, and I I, I liked I liked Gremlins, but not not as much. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question right off off the top of my head. Since you went to law school and got your your bar and you and, and you and you practice law, what, what's your favorite movie uh, based on? Uh, on a, on, court, on a courtroom drama, what, what do you like? Well, the one I mentioned the most, and it's, it was actually, uh, you know, the one that Tom Cruise was in the firm because I I was a tax lawyer, and it's like we didn't tax lawyers. Our life was nothing like it was in that movie. But uh, of course, it's my cousin Vinny. Okay, I pandered myself after him. Yeah, very, very, very good uh, movie. Joe Pesci, uh, Marissa Tomei. Here also this day. 
in film history. Uh, actually, uh, actually was June, June. Actually, this week, June fourth, nineteen eighty-two, Poltergeist gets released in theaters. Uh, has a six point seven million or six point eight million dollar opening weekend. Goes on to make seventy-seven million dollars domestically in the United States. Uh, Steven Spielberg produced it. Toby Hubert of Texas Chainsaw Massacre fame directed it. We've talked about this many times in this program, the history of this film and the legacy that a lot of people felt that Spielberg ultimately took the reins and wound up directing the movie for the most part. If you watch the opening scene of Poltergeist, it does feel totally Spielbergian. But uh, one interesting part about this film, this might be, this is 82 now, this is two years before PG-13 became a thing the first pg-13 movie ever was red dawn and that rating uh came into effect because parents complained that uh indiana jones and temple of doom and also gremlins uh in 84 were too a little too much for little children they wanted a harder rating so spielberg came in and sort of compromised and negotiated how about let's do this and then uh it became the staple of pg-13 but poltergeist was a pg movie pg and it is one of the edgier pg movies uh i I think certainly released in that decade uh has scares it has edge and the scripting and that movie is pretty edgy great movie i remember seeing that also in a theater people packed houses back in 82 to see poltergeist joe uh craig t nelson joe beth williams heather walker rock as, as carol ann and zelda rubenstein uh as tangina to trans trans uh, voyage she was great in that movie, I, I love Poltergeist. Do I some Poltergeist? Uh, those are not my kinds of movies. I get scared very easily. I can remember watching parts of it and then saying, "You know what? I, I think I'll watch a sitcom instead." Yeah, I'm. I it, to me, any movie like that, I just uh, I can't handle it. And, and it, unfortunately, you know, you, you can almost relate to it because you know, I don't know how many times I've thought about you know, yeah, just housing development I'm living in. I wonder how many people are buried under it. But I got to tell you, I know Poltergeist still works, completely works, because I screened it uh, last October for Halloween for the ESU girls soccer team. And I was like, what am I going to show them? The coach wouldn't let me show an R-rated horror movie. So I said, okay, I got a good one, Poltergeist. And I got to tell you, Ken, in the last 20 minutes, they were yipping and yelling and screaming at the screen. That movie still is just as good in 2023 as it was in 1982. A couple other this week in movie history or TV. Let's go to TV. June 10th, 1991, final episode of David Lynch's Twin Peaks airs on ABC, Kyle MacLachlan. I watched that show. Uh, it was a big ratings hit the first season. It sort of like petered, petered out. Uh, who the, the tagline was, who killed Laura Palmer? Uh, it was a quirky, to say quirky would be an understatement, but I certainly was a fan of David Lynch's Twin Peaks. Maybe creatively started to get, get a little bit of exhaust fumes toward the end, but uh, uh, I liked it a lot. They did a big screen movie, Walk With Me, and then a few years ago was revived on Showtime. So you, you have thoughts on Twin Peaks? We, did you watch that show? I, I never watched it because I was never a big fan of Madonna and I thought it was about Madonna's clothing. But uh, <laughs> I'll give you a little time to think of that one. But no, I, I, and it, you know, it's one of those things I should probably go back and watch because I do love quirky kinds of shows. Uh, but, you know, I've never, never really watched it. Okay. Uh, 
Uh, one other one before I get to a, a, a factual bit of information, and then we'll move on to our top ten list of favorite B action uh, type genre movies. 1972. Uh, this week in uh, music history, Sammy Davis Jr.'s Candyman from the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, number one on the Billboard charts. I, I love, I love, I actually love that uh, rendition. Uh, Sammy Davis singing that song, I thought it was terrific. Yeah, and the great thing is that he got away with the song that where the lyrics are clearly, clearly dealing with the drug culture. And nobody, <laughs> nobody accused him the same way of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds or Puff yeah, the no. Magic Dragon. But when you listen to that song, I mean, we know what the Candyman is selling, and it ain't, it ain't sugar. But I got to tell you, it did help sell that movie, which has gone on to be a classic, iconic movie, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And, no, and nobody uh, thinks it as well as Sammy Davis Jr. No. I, I actually always wondered why they didn't put Sammy Davis... In the, in the movie, I, I thought that I, I thought that was a miss, sort of a missed op- opportunity. I thought that would have been really cool. One of the uh, this week in uh, in, in history, uh, it was uh, the, the Betamax. I think it was Sony. Sony released the Betamax uh, into stores, which was the first recording, the the first home way at home you could watch movies and then it was uh vhs and then we went to laserdisc and then dvd i don't i never had a betamax but i do remember of the betamax technology uh thoughts on on betamax did you have one yeah yeah excuse me there yeah betamax is a bit like uh apple versus uh the android because the i mean we had there were competing technologies actually right betamax and vhs Betamax was far superior, and VHS won the battle. And uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember how big was Betamax. Like how big was the machine and the, and the thing it, that went in? It went in. How big was it? It was just just about the same. They were about the same size. It yeah. was. It was. It was just a thing of uh, Sony got out marketed, and uh, yeah. I mean, ultimately, technologies consistently change. And again, you know, when I, I like laser, I actually like lasers. I have about a hundred. Uh, plus laser just sitting in my closet at home collecting dust as, an, as, a, as, a, as a relic. But, you know, within D, because DVD took off, because one, you didn't have to flip the DVD, 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 DVD disc over like it did laser disc, and it was and it was much smaller. So, and then Blu-ray came out, uh, which was incredibly exciting because it was, you know, HD, and I beat, a, beat out the HD yeah, and, and the, disc, but... Both the CD, of course, the DVD, and the uh, Blu-ray had the advantage that they were basically computer programs. So right. you can have things like, you know, you want an alternate ending, you can have it. You can have a movie yeah. that goes different ways if you want, and it's and you can get a lot more onto that single disc. But I'm, yeah, those of us who have lived through, you know, we lived through the evolution. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I lived through. Uh, 30 uh, even some 78s but then 45s and then the cassette tape and then the eight track tape for about four years and then of course we went into the uh actually real the real eight track thing cassettes and then of course we went into uh, uh cds which have now become i mean i just threw about a thousand cds out because nobody even wants to buy them as you can download all this stuff um right. it, it was um it was a huge i think it was a huge uh uh, 
innovation when we got Betamax and uh, uh, got VHS because it brought movies into the home. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, and, it, changed, it changed the landscape. That, and, that and, was a and we could record stuff. The landscape. Yep. Yeah. But I, I, I do want to mention that, you know, this week, because this week in, of course, in 1944, and I know we're a movie show, but one of yeah. the greatest war movies ever is The Longest Day. And, of course, you've got the opening scene of Private Ryan, which is D-Day. This, Of course, this right. week in 1944 was uh, was D-Day, June 6th. And so something we should always remember because sure. I, 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 I was walking on the beach. I was actually thinking this last week, walking on the beach. Seeing how hard it is to walk on the beach in a bathing suit and thinking, how the heck do you run onto a beach under a full pack with people yeah. firing at you? I mean, it's just just absolutely amazing. And it's something I don't think we should ever forget D-Day because what those guys did was absolutely amazing. Yeah, I, I concur that uh, 100% uh, for sure. Here, uh, here's an interesting thing I, I also read. Uh you know, we have theatrical release, and then you have, okay, how long does the movie stay in a theater before it goes into the secondary stage, which is uh, VOD, uh, or pay-per-view, pay uh, where you could buy the movie on, uh, on, your, on your cable box. And Super Mario Brothers played in a movie theater this year for 41 days. It made over a billion dollars worldwide. And then on the 42nd day, it went to pay-per-view, uh, and it's done since then uh, $30 million in revenue domestically and $75 million in revenue uh, overseas. So that's $105 million, which 90, I believe, that's around 90% of that take goes in the pocket of the studio. So to me, 44, you know, a movie playing theatrically for 41 days and then going to the next stage, I guess I'm okay with that. I think 17, as I stated on this program, is too short. <laughs> I don't like day to day at all. If you're gonna do day to day, put your movie on stream. Uh, I don't. I don't need to see day to day. I just think it, it tarnishes the legacy of a, of any film that would go day to day. But uh, this is an example uh, where where I think Sony, who released uh, Super Mario Brothers, that is a massive win win. A big theatrical box office hit and making a lot of money on 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 uh, in, in the second stage, which is a pay per view. I think that's good. And then, you know the the success of the first week of pay per view may cause them to uh, actually embrace that forty two day model and tell me I'm crazy with my seventeen day. Yeah, uh, good point. Now one other bit of movie news, and we'll move into our main topic. Uh, it appears Disney is in the planning stages of they've got a writer uh, and they got a director, and they're going to evidently do a third entry in the Hocus Pocus franchise the first film which we all know has become a big pop culture movie that people seem to really dig especially at halloween time uh and then they did a directed disney plus sequel last last year which performed evidently fairly well brought back the original cast it was so so now will the original cast return here it appears they will how much screen time they'll get they're probably gonna from what i read focus on a couple of the side characters. Now the question, Ken, if you're gonna do this just to have the name attached, which is what they always want, and you don't bring the original cast back to be prominent in the film, uh, is that worth doing? I, I don't think so. I think you know we saw that's what ultimately killed things like the uh, Police Academy franchise. But you know, it's, to me, 
it's uh, just it's not the same and you get you get disappointed because you compare just like i think disney learned that from the debacle that was mary poppins returns that mm, you can't just get by on the name even the characters are the same name but the actors are different. Yeah, but I mean, Mary Poppins. You didn't say you. I actually, I actually, to a certain extent, enjoyed that movie. It's not the original, but I did think Emily Blunt was quite good. Uh, I thought it had a lot of entertainment value. I thought the scene with Dick Van Dyke was was still very special, especially guy his age and stature. You know, doing that song and dance number, I thought it was really good. Um, and they spent money and they put a marketing campaign behind that. I think the problem with Disney is, and, and it's sort of surprising because I never thought they would go this route. Uh, I mean, they really have sold out their library. And, and if it's if they could attach re- name recognition to make a buck, they're, they're, they seem to be all in, especially in the last decade of doing that with their live action library. Uh, um, I, I just, I don't know. I think you have to be, I think you should show respect for the entity in the in the in the franchise itself, I and mean, if you're going to do it, uh, do it with conviction. Don't do it on the cheap. So if you're going to do Hocus Pocus three, bring back the original cast again. Get a good screenwriter. Put some real effort and production value into it, and uh, we'll we'll call it a day. So let's bounce into our before we bounce uh, into our just a little bit of sure television news, which is also sure. movie news, and that is. That it appears before we see the third Downton Abbey movie, we may see season seven of Downton Abbey. Really, a lot okay. of yes. lot of chatter out there that, and apparently a lot of the original uh, cast is uh, still interested. Of course, Maggie can't come back because I don't think they're going to have a different universe here, and we just killed her <laughs> off in the <laughs> last Downton movie. Abbey multiverse, okay? Yeah, but yeah, uh, I don't think so. I. I I mean, I, for me, I would be thrilled because, let's face it, the two movies yeah. have basically been two-episode TV series. So right. uh, it'd be, I think it would be big news and be interesting to see something go TV, movie, and back to TV. Uh, that would be very interesting. Actually, in, in Monday, I don't think they've done that before, but that would certainly be, uh, be interesting. But with the, you know, the innovation of the popularity of... of television and streaming i i don't think that would be uh too much heavy lifting to do it all so now let's bounce into our top 10 favorite b-movie action films or exploitation uh lower not lower budget but movies that you know not going to win uh any, any oscars but we really seem to dig i'm going to start th- this week uh here's my number 10 through six my number 10 i went i'm going to go back to 1982 82 silent rage with chuck norris uh, it basically chuck norris against a michael myers like non-stop killing machine i remember seeing this in a theater i don't think it was i know i saw it in brooklyn i think it was the graham theater it was it was a it was a friday night the place was packed uh and this was the type of entertainment in a theater with a packed audience you simply don't see anymore. Never had anything else on his mind but B-movie conviction. It was Chuck Norris kicking some maniac murderer type of uh, uh, character. I thought the guy who who played that, uh, the villain in this film, was quite effective. I thought the movie was a lot of fun. Uh, I thought it worked, and I... To this day, I still enjoy it. I wish they made movies like this. So it's sort of harking back to when movies were this type of thing. So Silent Rage is my number 10. Number 
nine. I went with the substitute two. Uh, with Treat Williams, the first one starred Tom Barringer. Uh, it was recast with Treat Williams about a, a substitute teacher that cleans up crime in a school. Uh, I thought Treat Williams was a lot of fun. I watched this movie, I think, on, uh, it was 98. I think I watched it on VHS. I didn't see it in the theater. I went up renting it. I had a great time watching it, so that's my number nine. Number eight, this is a little bit of a big-budget movie, but I still put it in the B-movie category from 88. And it, I find this interesting in terms of film history because it's called Hard Rain. It's a disaster uh, heist thriller with Christian Slater and Morgan Freeman. And this was the last pinnacle of Christian Slater starring in a movie. This movie did not do financially well in theaters. I think it made like $10 million total. But I thought it was a good movie. It was very entertaining. Uh, uh, it, it, it had good action sequences. Betty White had a, a funny supporting role in this movie. I thought the effects were good. Morgan Freeman is always good. Also, Ed Asner is in the film. But I like Christian Slater a lot. He, they paired him up with Mimi, Mini Driver of uh, Goodwill Hunting fame. And there's a sequence in a in a prison cell where he's where he's in it and, and it's flooding and she has to rescue him. And I, I thought it was really, I just like this movie a lot. So number eight is Hard Rain. Number seven, now I'm going back to the 80s, uh, 82, a movie called Fighting Back with uh, Tom Skerritt. Now, I like Tom Skerritt a lot, and he's really good. He plays a character called John D'Angelo, and it supposedly was based on some true events about a business uh, storefront owner who helps clean up his neighborhood when it gets out of control and basically becomes a vigilante. I thought Tom Skerritt is an excellent actor, so he sort of elevates the B-movie roots of this material. I saw this one in a the theater. It's sort of, you know, aping the Death Wish stuff, but it's very effective, and you can't get it, I don't think, on DVD or Blu-ray. You have to find it in some obscure scenes that might be on YouTube, but Fighting Back, I like a lot from 82, so that's my number seven. And my number six, another movie that I used to watch religiously on VHS, it was called Class of 1984. Perry King, who is really good in this movie, plays a school teacher who has to clean up his school. There's always a theme with this cleaning up the school, but it seems like a, a, a genre that always works if it's done well. Timothy Van Patten plays a sort of a punk rock gang leader who also is a classical musician. Now, Timothy Van Patten went on to direct a lot of episodes of The Sopranos and Bulwark Empire. He's very talented, and he's a good actor. And Ken, he gives a really good performance in Class of 84. Roddy McDowell's also in this movie playing a teacher. He has one scene in this film, which is really cool. And Michael J. Fox, two years before Back to, Back to the Future, before he's became a, a household name, he's about 20 pounds heavier in this movie, and he's not well known. He plays a supporting role, but I love Class of 1984. Thought-provoking, a director named Richard Lester directed it. Uh, Thought-provoking, well-done, completely B-movie, but the type of film... Uh, in the 80s that you'd watch multiple times on VHS in the comfort of your living room. So that's my 10 through 6. I was tempted to just use the entire Selma Blair filmology for my B-movie <laughs> list. Because, uh, talk about, you know, somebody's made a career on B-movies, but, you know, I had to do some research on all this stuff. Because, yeah, I'm assuming and, you did. I did yeah. too also. Some of it popped in my head, but some of it I had to... Well, even, even on the... Oh, because there's no... 
agreed definition of what a B movie is. No, no, there now, is not. No, it comes. The, t- the term comes from the fact that they actually used to just like uh, just like forty five RPM records. They actually used to film uh, release films in a package, an A and a B for double features. And of course, the B was the. I did not know the, that. I, I didn't know that either. And then, of course, yeah. it became low budget movies. And then we even got into as we you know now we're saying oh two hundred million or less B themed movies. Because even some high budget movies like your beloved Poseidon Adventure and Earthquake and uh, Towering Inferno, they actually have their roots back in that B movie genre. They may be, except they're expensive films. Right, they're expensive movies, right? But I mean, yeah, yeah, I get it. So I, 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 my first one is from Uh 1989. This movie has the highest star to dollar ratio ever on IMDb. It had 4.2 stars, and each star cost just a little bit over $2,000 because the total cost of this movie was about $10,000, mostly for Slim Jims and Budweiser. The movie is called Redneck Zombies. It, it starred, <laughs> it. it starred, and it only is on video, basically starred yeah. anyone who was around at the time they were, they were filming. <laughs> uh, these, these guys find a barrel of radioactive waste and they end up using it as part of their still, and it turns them into zombies. And some of the, because, you know, B-movies also have to be quirky. Some of the characters in the movie are Dr. Ben Casey and Dr. Kildare, of course, from TV fame. Not the actors who played them, of course, just they, B-movies can't come up with their own names for stuff. The next one, there's, there's actually two movies that were made, same movie, uh, it's a Dashiell Hammett story. It gives us that second most famous Humphrey Bogart quote. What is that? It's the stuff that dreams are made of. Um, the Maltese Falcon actually began in 1931 as a film starring B.B. Daniels and Ricardo Cortez. Uh, it was remade by John Huston in 41. It only had a $400,000 budget. Huston was popping out a whole bunch of movies uh, as the world was headed towards war uh, and we we're trying to entertain people anywhere we could but you know the Maltese Falcon 31 or bogey in 41 playing Sam Spade is my is my number nine okay uh, my number eight um, I, I I can't do this without doing a Sir, Sergio Leone movie uh, this movie of course starred Clint Eastwood Eli Wallach Lee Van Cleef and a whole bunch of Italians, just like every one of these movies did. It was the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, I mean, it gave us that spaghetti western, which was its own subgenre of the B-movie. The cheap western filmed in Italy with a bunch of Italians, and, you know, they were all the same script over and over again, and mostly the same actors. I think it was to cut down on travel costs or something. <laughs> my seventh one, I don't even know what the budget of this movie was. Whatever they spent on it, it was too much. But since last week, it was dethroned as the worst movie of all time. The movie about a nuclear-powered bus going from New York to Colorado that gets sabotaged by the oil lobby. Of course, it's 1976's The Big Bus, which starred Joseph Bologna, Stockton Channing, and Ned Beatty. The three of them probably never like it when anybody remembers that movie. The second worst movie of all time. I don't know. I like it better than that. You, you know, I told the audience before that 
evidently, and I think this would have been really, really interesting, that Steven Spielberg's first choice actually for uh, Brody in Jaws was Joseph Bologna. He had a feel about him. He thought he would fit. The studio didn't like it. They ultimately wound going with Roy Scheider, who, of course, was iconic. But I actually, I see in my mind's eye, I could see Joseph Bologna as 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 Sheriff as uh, is is Brody in in, in Jaws. I, I think that would work. Me too. Hey, now my yeah. my, my number six is from nineteen sixty. It starred Jonathan Hayes and Jackie Joseph, of course. Two huge stars. Have you ever heard of either one of them? No, uh, I have not. Uh, Jackie uh, Joseph uh, starred as Audrey. Uh, Jonathan Hayes started as starred as Seymour. Jack Nicholson starred as Wilbur. And of course, it was Little Shop of Horrors, the non-musical black and white version from 1960. That's a good B movie. That is a good movie. I like that movie. I that is a. I I, I screen that. A couple of years ago, because it was uh, public domain, so I'd have to, we'd have to pay for the rights during Halloween week. And I never see, saw it before. I got to tell you, I, I really did enjoy it. I thought Nicholson, you know, when you watched him in that movie, he, to say he's over the top would be an understatement. But he was so over the top, it's almost hard to imagine that the career, the amazing career he wound up having. But boy, oh boy, was he over the top. Yeah, you know you've made a cheap movie and a movie that didn't do much when you allow yeah. it to go into the public domain. That's all I'm saying. I, I would agree. So now we'll do a five through one, one at a time. My number five, uh, this is not a low-budget movie, but it is a B-movie. And it was the, probably the last hurrah of Steven Seagal theatrically before he started to really uh, have a very bumpy ride going forward. And that was Under Siege 2 from 1995. Three years removed from Under Siege, which I think was Seagal's best film. He had the best talent around him. So they do a sequel three years later. Uh, Catherine Heigl, who went on to become uh, big on Grey's Anatomy, plays his niece. Eric Bogosian, who did a radio, or did her off-Broadway, I think it was off-Broadway, called Talk Radio, which they made a movie out of. He plays the villain in this movie, uh, Eric Dane, uh, Eric Dane, I, I think his name was. And he had a quote in that movie, which I always remember. He said, chance is the, uh, is the essence of desire. Uh, and I always liked that line. I thought he was a good villain. I thought Seagal was really cool. It takes place on a, on a train. Uh, it has a lot of good scenes. Seagal's super likable. I think it's very effective. When it came out, the studio did not screen it in advance for critics because they thought they had a dud on their hands. It may not have made a lot of money, but Cisco Niebuhr wound up giving it a thumbs up. I saw it opening weekend. I thought it was terrific, actually, for, for that genre. So I always like this movie. It's one of my movies that I could pop on uh, Blu-ray or stream when I'm looking for something to enjoy as a simple time killer on a rainy night. So I love me some Under Siege 2 from 95. That's my number. Five. My number five, uh, great title. It's from 1965. The title is Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. I mean, what a great title for a B-movie. And before we had Spielberg, before we had Scorsese, we had Russ Meyer. And Russ, we have? Russ Meyer. Russ oh, Ma yeah, yeah, okay. Known for all these famous sexploitation films. Uh, where the B stood for boob as well as being a B-movie. Uh, it was about three go-go dancers who conspire to defraud a uh, villainous old man. And like any other Russ Meyer film, it had a real grungy quality to it. 
race car driving, women punching and being punched in the face, and yeah, you could have called this movie Twin Peaks as well, looking at some of the women that were in it, and a big dumb idiot named uh, Vegetable. It's one of those movies, if you just want something that's just this side of the of the unrated uh, softcore porn, it would be a Russ Meyer film, and that would be Faster Pussycat. Kill, kill, my number five. You know what's interesting about Russ Meyer? Because I just mentioned Roger Eve, Cicely Ebert. Russ Meyer did Valley of the Dolls, right? Yes. And then Roger Ebert wound up actually writing a script, which was which was a sequel beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Uh, so he has a, he had a connection with Russ Meyer back in the day. Yeah, but yeah, Russ Meyer clearly an exploitation, low budget uh, type of filmmaker back in that time period. Uh, interesting pick, Ken. My number four. I went with a movie that they don't make movies like this anymore. I love this movie. It's called Eight Millimeter. Joel Schumacher, who went really edgy in this movie. He's a terrific director with did Falling Down. He gets a lot of flack for Batman and Robin. But this is a great not nah, only use a great this is a really good exploitation B movie. Uh, this is a studio film, but Nicolas Cage plays a guy who who investigates He's hired to investigate a murder of a girl who was killed making a snuff film. And he goes into a very dark world. Joaquin Phoenix is in this movie. Uh, James Gagliaffini. It's, it's, it's dark. Uh, it's real dark. But it's real good. And Nicolas Cage is terrific. It's definitely uh, at its roots a B-movie. And this is the type of film they simply don't make anymore. Especially for theatrical release. But 8mm from 1999... If people in the audience haven't seen it, rent it, stream it. You won't be disappointed. This is a good one. That's my number four. And about the same time as we had Spielberg, we had the Chiodo uh, brothers. They only actually directed and produced one film. It was 1988. The film, you know, B-films, We a lot of times we have aliens in them. This, this movie has aliens, of course. These aliens come to Earth in a giant circus tent. It is killer clowns from outer space. From 1988, and you know they come down here and they uh, turn people into cotton candy and then eat them. You see, you can't have a B movie if it makes any sense. What's the haul? It is probably one of the craziest 1980s horror flicks, if you want to call it that. But it is also, like I said, the uh, the Chiodo brothers would go on and do special effects for it other movies but after this one they never tried to uh, direct again killer clowns from outer space my number Here's four the thing. you know when you when you mention that movie like i i harken back and i say to myself that this generation is being robbed of the beauty and the joy of going to your local mom and pop video store seeing a box on the shelf of a movie you never heard of and renting it taking it home and going Wow, is that really cool? Because I remember going, having that experience with this movie and saying to myself, holy smoke, this is really inventive. It's super cool. It's going on to have a big cult of following. It plays a lot of drive-in uh, theaters and festivals. This movie still holds up very well. As, well for what it is, a low-budget B-movie with a lot of inventive skill. And uh, boy, I do miss those days when you could really do that and this is an example of a b-movie a clearly a b-movie but had a lot of inventiveness that was a lot of fun and it was so much a pure joy to 
discover this type of material in a video store. Boy, do I miss that day, Ken. My number three, I went with the movie that I, that I was a big fan of. This movie actually made some money in theaters, but they certainly don't move, make movies like this in a theater. Uh, the Principal from 87 with James Bellucci, Lou Gossett Jr., about a guy who uh, James Bellucci gets, uh, gets uh, told that he has to substitute teach in high school i think it's due to uh, a drunk driving charge and uh has to clean it up there's some really nasty high school kids in this movie james bellucci who did a lot of comedies really good in this movie in a more dramatic role luke gossett jr it's a lot of fun in the supporting part movie has very effective audience cheering scenes if you saw this in the theater in 87 i think it holds up beautifully i watched it last month on, on, on stream, I think it was on Amazon Prime. So the principal with James Bellucci from 1987, a super fun, entertaining be fair that uh, is well worth seeing that's my number three ken my number three probably was the forerunner of rick moranis and honey i shrunk the kids we have to go back to 1967 jack arnold was the director and it this movie produced uh, it combines uh really cheap movie making but innovative special effects and actually a good story and uh Scott Casey is exposed to radioactive cloud and he begins to get smaller and smaller and doctors can't stop it. And he soon learns the perils of being an incredibly shrinking man. It's the incredible shrinking man from 1967. Something we've seen done after that, but it actually was a very good film. And it's another one of those ones that you really like it because the special effects and the movie making is so cheap. You don't take any of it seriously. You know he's not going to get, you know, he's not going to get eaten by the spider or the ant. Or else, you know, he won't make it to the end of the movie. But that's my number three, The Incredible Shrinking Man, 1967. They wound up remaking that movie with with, uh, Incredible Shrinking Woman with Lily Tomlin. I don't think it worked very well, but in its low-budget roots, I thought it was a a, a lot of fun. My number two... uh, I, I went with the movie Nobody that came out a few, couple years ago during COVID in 2021. Uh, and, and this movie uh, was, I thought, uh, really, really highly entertaining. I didn't know what to expect. It stars uh, Better Call Saul uh, actor who did a great job in this movie. Uh, I, I thought the, 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 the fight scenes were great. I thought the backstory was very intriguing. I hope they do a sequel to this movie. I didn't know what to expect when I went into the theater to watch it, but I had a great time watching it. And again, this is one of those genres that I really dig. Uh, Bob Odenkirk uh, uh, is the lead. I thought he was really good in this movie. He's a fantastic actor. I thought he he relished this type of material because I don't think he's ever done anything like it. And uh, from the producers of John Wick, this movie really delivered. I hope for a sequel, but uh, this was a what they call a, a, a immediate hidden treasure. Nobody, uh, I like a lot. It's my number two. My number two comes from 1965. Uh, it stars Vincent Price, and it's not a horror movie. It is Vincent Price. It's a spoof of the James Bond movies. He is the nefarious Doctor Goldfoot whose only defining characteristic is he wears a pointy gold pair of shoes, which we don't really know why. Uh, There's a lot of busty women in it. Uh, He creates uh, female uh, automatons 
to sleep with various world leaders and captains of industry. It's everything you want from a B-grade film in the 60s. Uh, a lot of scantily clad women. It wraps up with a five-minute chase sequence that rivals the infamous 1966 Batman Some Days You Just Can't Get Rid of a Bomb sequence. It is <laughs> Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine. What better title? Oh, go out, yeah, go out and rend it. Go out and rend it. Yeah. That's so number two. You recommend it. I do. I do. Okay. Here's my number one. And I always said, and I told Mike, this is, for whatever reason, this is my favorite B-movie, uh, I think, of all time. Because it's it's so over the top to a point, but I still grounded in Charles Bronson. And that's Death Wish Straight, the third entry in the Death Wish franchise from 85 takes place in one of the inner cities in New York where Bronson has to clean up the neighborhood. What I like about this movie is Ed Lauder, who is in uh, The Longest Yard, he plays a police chief who sits down with Kersey, knows his reputation, and basically gives him full autonomy to basically kill all the bad thugs in the neighborhood to clean it up. Now, I don't know if, how that would happen, but that's what happens in this movie. Uh, Martin Balsam is in it. This is the last half hour is just Bronson mowing down the bad guys from one block to the next. And there's a really cool scene in this movie where Bronson tells the apartment complex uh, neighbors that he's trying to help. That you know, help is on the way. Willie is on the way. Willie is on the way. And you say when you're watching him, who's Willie? And it turns out to be it's a high-powered gun that comes uh, to the post office that 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 he uses to help kill the bad guys. Yeah, it's exploitation. Uh, it's a canon movie. Michael Winner, same director who did all the other Death Wish, most of the Death Wish movies, the first two actually, comes back to direct this one. Uh, Bronson evidently knew this was over the top. He did it anyway, but it just plays out like a 90-minute, super entertaining B-film uh, exploitation. But Bronson delivered that in spades, and I love me some Death Wish, Death Wish Street. So that is now and will probably always be my number one favorite B-movie of all time. My number one, uh, it was a tele- made-for-television movie, although it did earn a whopping $200,000 from 200 screenings in the Regal Cinemas back there in uh, 2013. It was it had a it had a uh, uh, a two million dollar two hundred million two million it had a small budget. Let me say that. Uh-huh. Uh, but even more than that, it was yeah you know, a two million dollar budget, but it was filmed in eighteen days because they wanted to save on hotel costs and the like. It spawned five sequels and three spinoffs and wow. an entire and an an, an entire. Uh, a group of devotees. Of course, it is 2013's absolutely crazy movie. That is, it's an even worse premise than Revenge of you know Jaws: The Revenge. It is Sharknado from 2013. Let me tell you something about Sharknado. Uh, I'm a big fan of that franchise, especially the. the and- I'm sort of perplexed why they stopped doing it. I guess the rate of viewership of the sci-fi channel has gone down. But Ian Ziering, who was on Beverly Hills 9021 fame, won. He looked really good uh, physically. He he knew how to play this material. Yeah, it was absurd, but it also was a, uh, a, a basic cable TV event. And when, they, when each one of these premiered, 
they got bigger and bigger and a little bit more bombastic to say the least but I do enjoy this franchise so as a B movie I think Sharknado is a lot of fun and so is most of the sequels Ken so I actually like a lot your number one pick that's a, that's a good one I'm a, I am a fan of this franchise this, this, one was, this one was fun because it was uh, we had to do some uh, digging yes I mean nobody's gonna mistake Tara Reid as a good actress but uh she gave it a roll, That's to right. say the least. So, uh, so, so again, I've had a lot of fun on this installment. Uh, to the audience, thanks for listening. See you next week. And, hey, a lot of good movies coming out. Hopefully, go to the movies. See you next week, Ken. Bye, Chuck. Thanks for listening to Movie Maniacs. Download one of our archived episodes. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts by Federated Media.